Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Emily, how was your week? My week was not as amazing as the previous weeks. <laughs> After we last spoke, I tore my hamstring and I have been in quite a lot of pain from that. And I have therefore been taking some painkillers. I also then got a virus. I don't know if it's the same virus. It was just a sort of 24 hour virus. I had a fever. I had a sore throat. I felt really rubbish 24 hours, but it seems to have passed. Now, those two things together, I don't know which has now caused my stomach's quite bad. It might be the painkillers. It might be from the virus. But I'm not feeling too long covid I'm a little bit worse than I was the past week, slightly dizzy, but I'm doing okay. Like, I'm still positive. That's good. <laughs> I'm in pain. I was though. just thinking right then, how our standards have dropped, haven't they? Get dizzy, <laughs> can't see much. You were saying the other day that you couldn't see very much. Absolutely couldn't see. I couldn't even see to text properly. I don't know what I was texting people because everything was blurry. Is that is that a normal thing with a virus? I'm also interested if our listeners can maybe drop a note on the website or to us via social as to whether they have some of these weird things that we talk about each week. Because apparently the hamstring tear might actually not be completely unrelated to long COVID. So really interested <laughs> to hear... I'm grasping at straws there, my love. I think it's because we've reached a certain age. Uh, connected tissue issues. Mm. Anyway, I'm interested to hear from people as to whether, you know, these weird things that we talk about. I know. I'm super interested to hear about if anyone suffers with weird sensations on their tongue. Like I get these ulcers on the tip of my tongue and they're not even ulcers. It's just a soreness. And if I look at my tongue, I can just see that it's slightly red and there's nothing there. But it's definitely sore I, I but I get that the side of my tongue gets sore and then I told you yesterday didn't I I think I got a nettle sting uh, across the front of my shin yeah. and it, I could still feel it, like a razor blade cutting across my shin about eight hours later that is weird I did say that was weird yeah so are these weird are they weird histamine things I don't know how was your week my love I've had a really rough week I had a COVID-like virus with negative lateral flows when I came back from my break. So that was early September and I got a really bad chest infection. You could hear I was coughing a lot. And then I got a really bad stomach and I went to the doctor because I was really bloated all the time and I thought this was not very good and it lasted a month. So I went to the doctor and she gave me antibiotics and the antibiotics have totally effed me up. I'm on my knees. I'm on the weirdest, strongest dose of three different drugs. I've had to take one away because one of them was making me super anxious. You know, that was one of the side effects. So I've had a really rough week. And then I woke up this morning, as you can hear, my voice is gone, with my eyes streaming and completely congested and my chest is now refilled. Ah. So my, my T-cell theory, where our immune system is absolutely trashed, and I have evidence to show that my immune system is trashed, is bearing fruit. Mm. Yeah, that is what <laughs> our conversation this morning, wasn't it? Your immune system is not in a good way. No, I've been sick for six weeks now. Yeah, and it's really hard to know what the drugs are doing in terms of the side effects. And Now my, my whole mouth is full of ulcers, and I'm, I think that's because of the 
antibiotics. It's really tough to know what to do as well. Yeah, I tell you another weird um, symptom, which I've seen on social, but I don't think we've ever talked about it. I get sometimes on the tips of my fingers, it looks like I've come out of the bath and they go all wrinkly. Pruny. Yeah. And I've seen other people mention that they get that as well. And I wonder why. My hands sort of permanently look like that because I have such bad eczema on my hands, but I've definitely had that worse. Yeah. And because I've been so generally unwell, my heart's all over the place. The tachycardia, the POTS part of the of long COVID is pretty prominent at the moment, where you know, my heart's completely out of sync with the rest of me. Which brings us nicely <laughs> to this week's guest. Mm. Dr. David Strain, who's a senior lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School and an honorary consultant at the local NHS Trust. And I think it's fair to say that pretty much since the beginning of the pandemic, he has been doing a huge amount of work researching and working with long COVID. No, he's he's got many long COVID strings to his bow. When we get into the interview, he does know a lot about different parts of the research, not only the area that he specialised in, and actually, the reason we wanted to talk to him was we wanted to find out more about the heart rate variability. Yeah, which is something that's come up various times. It's a metric that we've heard a lot, but we don't really know a lot about. Dr. Strain has been working with Harry Leeming at Visible, developing their product, which is an app and a wearable one element of which uses heart rate variability in the assessment and management, both in long COVID and ME and other chronic conditions. He was able to explain to us how it works and what it means. The first sign that you had that long COVID was this sort of phenomenon, but it was specifically attached to ME-CFS patients at that time. Yeah, so the, the first few patients were ME-CFS patients that had had their old symptoms rekindled. I think the first patient that I saw with brand new symptoms was towards the mid to the end of June 2020 from that first wave of the pandemic. And he'd never been through the ME service before. And actually, there were one or two bits from the outset that were slightly different between the, those that had gone before and that first patient. I still do remember them. Um, actually foremost was that he as well as the fatigue and the brain fog that has now become common parlance he was describing quite significant chest pains which was not the typical feature of our MECFS patients but he was describing very classic what's now regarded anyway as classic long covid chest pain palpitation symptoms is that the main difference between the ME subgroup and the long covid cohort because it's a debate isn't it whether long covid is just me-cfs not just but one in the same there are some symptoms of long covid that do fit in with this very typical post-viral fatigue syndromes um or myalgic encephalomyelitis even me itself isn't a single disease um, and the more we find out about it the more we find that there are different viruses that can trigger it and they have different presentations. Some people actually have more immunoglobulin deficiencies. They have different ways of responding to the same things. And ME is a hodgepodge of different diseases. So is it, again, a syndrome, a, a melting pot of different things? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with long COVID, we are also seeing several different long COVID syndromes. And they are also likely to have different underlying causes. 
It's just that because they've all been triggered by COVID, we're trending to put them together. And I think that's going to be a major test when it comes to both diagnostics and treatment, because at the moment, everybody's searching for a single test that will say, yes, you do have long COVID. And actually, what I think we'll end up with is a single test that says, yes, you have this particular form of long COVID, and therefore that is going to be the best treatment for you. But for everybody else that doesn't work and they end up with a different test, and I think we're going to see at least three different syndromes that we are currently effectively terming long COVID. Because that's one thing that Noreen and I have spoken to various people about, because there's obviously a huge interest in microclots and there's research going into that. But one of our things that we've asked various people is, I've definitely got long COVID. What happens if I don't test positive for microclots? Then I don't have long COVID in terms of future medical or government support. So I think that we do need to look at multiple different assessments or to take into account that just because you don't show this specific biomarker, it doesn't mean that you don't have the condition. I think we will end up in a position that we accept that long COVID is multiple different conditions that are triggered by the same virus, but result in different consequences. And I think microclots is a great example. Microclots themselves, are they a cause or are they effect? <laughs> so that's what we've been saying. Actually, we know that the coronavirus itself, because of its activation of platelet-derived factor four, we know that when you've got acute COVID, your clotting is much higher than it ordinarily is. Now, if you then end up with a residual viral load, one of the key symptoms that that would predispose you to, if you have an already predisposition, is to produce a whole load of clots. And they would cause some of the symptoms that we see there, the COVID fingers, COVID toes, funny rashes, some of the hair loss for some people. But that's not to say that that's the cause. And therefore, if you test for them, that just says which group. We saw with the AstraZeneca vaccine that a very, very small proportion of people had a, a genetic predisposition to forming clots. And actually, the microclots that we get from long COVID have the same pathway, and therefore only a small proportion of people that have residual virus, if that is indeed the case, would present with microclots. That doesn't mean that those who've got other symptoms and don't have microclots don't have the same long COVID process going on. It just manifests itself differently. There's a huge range of things that we could talk to you about. Obviously, your research is vast in this area. But I know that Noreen would really like to drill down on one particular area that no one's really given us a specific answer on yet. Yeah, I got your details from Harry. And so I'm particularly interested in the product that he's working on that's known as Visible, which is a pacing app and wearable. I really wanted to find out about HRV. So there's heart rate variability and how we use it and what it means. Because no one's ever been able to explain it clearly. We'd love to know the relevance of it, how it works, and what your thoughts are on it as a marker? The first thing to say is, although we tend to think of our heart rate as being relatively constant, there are all sorts of things that fluctuate within our heart rate. And so if you take your average 60 beats per minute out of that, you'll see that there is very, very slight variations. Now, the first thing that causes variety there is your breathing. Every time you breathe in, you decrease the pressure within your lungs and therefore you suck the blood out of your heart quicker. 
And when you breathe out, you're raising the pressure in your lungs and therefore you're pushing the blood from your lungs back into the heart. And that causes a, a different degree of stretch. And because of that, your heart rate beats at a very, very slightly different rate. Because the faster the heart's filling, the more pressure it exerts, the easier it is to empty, the quicker the heart will go. So we see in breaths in and breaths out being associated with slight fluctuations of slowing and speeding up of the heart. Uh, and we can pull that out. So we can pull from your 60 beats a minute, then your, your spiritual rate, and that will come in at about 12 breaths per minute. And you can see those fluctuations very, very slightly with every single beat. Now that's just the first thing that causes variability within your heart. You also see um, changes with the endothelium, the, the blood vessel lining have their own pulsatility to them. When you've got high vagal tone, so the soothing nerve in your body, the, the thing that calms you down, the things activated by yoga or singing lessons or breathing exercises, that will have an impact on the beat-to-beat -beat variability. Similarly, the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight, the thing that makes you go really tense, ready to run away from a tiger. Makes you feel like you've got anxiety. Exactly. And, and that will um, have an effect on the beat-to-beat -beat variability. So it doesn't just affect the heart rate itself, because we know that relaxation slows the heart rate down and anxiety speeds the heart rate up. But it also affects the beat-to-beat -beat variability between every single beat and the impact that your breathing has on that and the impact that just exercise has on that and those individuals. Now, what we can do is you can actually pull out each of the different waves in its own right. So if you pull out the 60 beats a minute, that's your heart rate. And once you've extracted those beats, what you're then left with is a major wave that's your respiratory wave. You can then pull that one out. You could then pull out your sympathetic and your parasympathetic waves. You can then pull out your endothelial function. And each of those comes with its own waveform. It, the, the process is called a fast Fourier transformation, that you basically pull out a waveform and then the waves that are left, you pull out another waveform and the waves that are left, you pull out another waveform. And the best analogy for it, if, if you imagine a Mexican wave going around a football stadium, you will see that a Mexican wave will go quick right at the outset and then it kind of slows down and then it slows down and it hits the same people for a second time, it's going slower. And then somebody scores a goal and then the wave speeds up again. And if you imagine that sort of process is going on, you can pull out the activity. Now, in the example, it's pulling out how good your football team is doing because the better they're doing, the quicker it runs around. In the fast Fourier transformation of the heart rate, it's pulling out um, whether your autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, the speeding up and the slowing down is more active, how the blood vessels are working. And by pulling out each of those waves, you can then see how is the autonomic nervous system that controls everything your body does when you are leaving it to its own devices, how well that is interacting with your heart. And depending on how well that's interacting with your heart is a really good indication for how well that's going to be interacting with the rest of your body. And that then puts us in a position that we can say, okay, well, if today your autonomic nervous system is interacting really well with your heart, it's probably interacting really well with the rest of your body. And as a result, um, we're going to have a good day. Whereas if today your heart rate is completely static, it's just doing the 60 beats a minute that it's told to do and it's ignoring everything else that's going on, it's entirely possible that one bit of the body is then going to be ignoring other bits of the body. And they're the days that we're expecting 
to have a, a bad day from the, the long COVID point of view. And that's the to actually say, well, okay, what do I need to do today as opposed to what would I like to do today? And actually by knowing at the start of your day what your day is likely to involve, that means you can have a better plan. You can better pace or you can plan what you want to do, plan longer rest breaks if it's a bad day or try and squeeze that stuff that you've been wanting to do for the last few weeks if it's going to be a good day. And that then allows you to um, better plan your activities. And it's a good way of helping people to live with long COVID. It's not a solution. You know, monitoring heart rate variability is just telling you what's going on but at least it gives people the ability to plan their day going forward. What I find a little confusing is that when I'm having a bad day, my heart rate goes really high. So yesterday I was having a terrible day. After many months, walking up the stairs, my heart rate went to 150. But when I look at my HRV, it's really low. So I don't, I don't understand how it, how it works. So uh, a low heart rate variability means that your heart isn't listening to the rest of your body. Likely that the whole body is not talking to itself, and that's when you have a bad day. So you'd expect to have low, okay. Yeah. The heart rate going up is just a measure of your sympathetic activity. But what the hope is, and I'm stressing, you know, this is all research at the moment, but what the hope is, is that heart rate variability predicts how your day is going to be. So if you start the day with a low heart rate variability, you'd actually say, well, do I need to do all those flights of stairs? Because you know that your heart is just going to go out of control. I didn't know how to read it. So like, for example, I read today that my, my heart rate variability is only 24. And normally it's in the 40s or 50s. Yeah. And so when I'm, ha- when I'm feeling particularly well, for, and then I looked up an average table, woman my age, it should be in the 40s. So you've got low heart rate variability today. Yeah. So you should sit down, love. I am sitting down. I'm not feeling particularly <laughs> great. But is that how we look at it? We should look at what our average is. And if it's lower, it means we're not doing very well. And if it's higher, we're actually doing better than we should be. Yes. And, and that's, the, that's the way we're looking at it at the moment. I want to stress that this is all in the research domain at the moment. It's been trialed on a few hundred people. And a lot of what we're doing here is extrapolated from stuff that we know in ME with all of those caveats that there are elements of ME are very different. Using the heart rate variability like that, is that something that you've been doing in other conditions like ME previously? We were aware that people with certain types of ME had low heart rate variability. Long COVID has happened to occur at a massive technological surge time just the polar devices that Harry's using in order to look at the day-to-day heart rate and the heart rate variability weren't as sensitive as they were even two or three years ago. So two or three years ago, we wouldn't have been able to pull out the the degree of differences within each beat-to-beat that you can get now because the devices were crude. So going forward, we would anticipate that this would be good. It was established that patients with an ME have got a lower heart rate variability than counterparts who don't have, but we're only just at a stage where we can start utilising it. So I think it's just a... And utilising it outside of a hospital setting or in a sort of everyday setting with the devices and the apps, the potential accessibility for this vast number of people that have it. Yeah, I mean, just to get it, when I did my PhD a very, very long time ago, I would actually be setting a computer running and it would run an overnight trace in order to get every single patient who ran through my study. 
And to get the HRV, I would, I genuinely would set it going before I left for work and the computer would be completely tied up analyzing it between then and the next morning. There's now more computing power on your iPhone that I had in my entire lab when I was doing my PhD. And that's one of the things that's allowed this to, to come to the fore. You know, it was a, a full day post hoc analysis before, whereas now real time in about five or six seconds, it's done the analysis and actually uploaded it to a system compared to where you normally are and was giving you your information back. And, and that's a massive step forward that just wasn't there it's even incredible. two years ago. Yeah. So I wear an Apple Watch and I use my iPhone and it says heart rate variability. It's done all that work for me where it's measured between respiratory waves and is that what it's done? So at the moment, it's not pulling out individual waves. All it's looking at is those first two cycles, the first two cycle being the heart and, and the respiratory wave. What the eventual aim is, is when we've got the 24-hour polar thing going, it takes longer and longer to get each of those. The actual cycles of the wave run on different frequencies, and those different frequencies result in needing longer time frames in order to analyze it. Heart rate, 60 beats per minute, one a second. You actually need about 10 seconds worth of that to get the heart rate. Your spiritual rate is running at about 12 breaths per minute. And so you need a full minute of that. As soon as you get into the adrenaline, the, the, the sympathetic, the parasympathetic and the endothelial, you're into periods where you'll need five, 10 uh, or even 20 minutes in order to get a good analysis of those different wave patterns. So your iPhone, your Apple Watch is measuring your heart rate and then the variability that's triggered by your breathing, your respiratory rate. And that's how it can actually tell you what your respiratory rate is. What we eventually hope to be able to do is real time pull out the sympathetic, the parasympathetic, and even the endothelial bit, because each of those will have different impacts on the symptoms that you experience. So if you've got a really high sympathetic tone, for example, there are individuals who will start exercise and then they'll get a very, very rapid heart rate. They won't be able to control it and they will feel exhausted really, really quickly. Patients with the um, parasympathetic tone, however, are, are more likely to get the postprandial symptoms. So they're more likely to, if they have a meal, a simple food, and you, you may have heard of some people with long COVID describe this, that they'll eat. And actually eating the meal is more exhausting than preparing it. And, and they're people that we might be able to predict with the parasympathetic tone. Endothelial tone is all of your blood vessels. That's basically the way that your oxygen, nutrients are delivered to tissues. And also the signaling between your cells uh, and the, the brain are all in one way or another through the blood vessels. And that may be more associated with people with brain fog or people whose kidneys aren't working quite as well as they used to, who will be affected. Now we'll need much longer tracings for that. And that's where the, the polar, the wearable, hopefully in the future also through the Apple Watch, through the other means, we'll be able to get those bits married in as well. Fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it sounds like you've seen or you are speaking to people for whom all of these things are happening and possibly not in the same person. So you're suggesting that some people have high vagal tone and some people are in fight or flight mode. Absolutely. Are you seeing that people are having both of them? Because I had a probably... 15 months when I was basically in fight or flight mode, the adrenaline in my body was crazy. I didn't sleep. But then on the flip side of that, I do now have periods where I think that I, I don't, I haven't really worked on my vagal tone, but I do a lot of yoga. I do a mindfulness. And I think that I have, maybe I've, maybe I've reversed that. 
with these things. Yeah, you, you're busy saying that you don't work on your vagal tone and then you do yoga, you do the mindfulness. <laughs> that is exactly what it is for the vagal tone. Is it? There have been a few studies out there now that have, of the, the things that have been demonstrated to benefit long COVID so far, the only two that have had successful in randomized controlled trials are singing lessons and, and yoga. Noreen laughs at me that I say I'm breathing my way out of this illness. But honestly, my yoga and my mindfulness are the best things I've done for it. And for people with uh, the issues with a vagal tone, that is incredibly effective. And then there's going to be other people that actually didn't have any vagal tone problems to start with. And therefore, that's going to be absolutely useless for them. Pointless. And, and as you say, yeah, there, there are people who... There's people who got all of the the metrics are affected. And then there's going to be some people who've only got certain bits that have been affected. Can you get bits and then fix bits? Because I used to have that parasympathetic thing where when I would eat, I would feel very unwell after. My heart rate would go really high. And that's gone away now. But if I get a virus, my heart rate goes out of control because my body's obviously inflamed. I want to stress, nobody is fully sure how any of those different elements really work. What we're seeing right. there is an effect rather than a cause. And it's a step towards the. And although we regard it as an outcome in its own right, and we regard that, um, as you say, that feeling terrible after a meal to be a result of your impaired vagal tone, that's not to say that that's actually the cause. That's just the mechanism by which whatever caused long COVID in you is causing the symptoms that you experience. And it's a step between. It's the same as the microquarts. That's a step between that underlying cause and the effects, the bit that you actually see. The reason why exactly the same stimulus would cause different effects in different people is one of the biggest questions that we still need to answer. There's very likely to be genetic components to it. Yeah, you've been researching with a team of geneticists to see. At, at the moment, we are collecting that genetic data. We're collecting it through um, the, the Sano Gold study. And actually, if anyone's listening and wants to uh, register, particularly groups from um, ethnic minorities don't have enough people who've been affected by this from ethnic minorities yet. So I'll do it. <laughs> Go on to it. Son of gold. Get in there. Get a free genetics test. You actually also get the nice report to say how closely you are related to Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun, which is just a nice little perk from doing it. What was it called? Sorry, again. It's Sano Gold. Sano Gold. S-A-N-O Gold. Genetics of Long covid Within that, what are you looking at? Let's say I don't know anything about genetics. <laughs> at the moment, we're in the process of collecting the genetic type and we do a, a GWAS study, a, a genomic a gene-wide association study. So we look okay. at all of the, um, the, the genes that have been highlighted that might be predictors for inflammation, that might be predictors for any of these elements. And then what we do is we compare people who've got long COVID with the general population and say, is this particular gene more prevalent in people who've got long COVID? Now, obviously, we're having to tie that into a questionnaire because, as I've said, we've seen different symptoms of long COVID. And what we're likely or what we're expecting to find is that there'll be some genes that are associated with some particular symptoms and other genes associated with other symptoms. We're also hoping to combine this with another data set that's currently being created, um, which is DECODE ME which is Chris Ponting, my uh, friend and colleague in um, Edinburgh, is setting up this for myalgic encephalomyelitis. And he's doing a very, very similar genetic study there. 
And the idea is we'll be able to look for similarities and differences. And actually, that's a step towards helping us understand whether these really are the same condition, just with a different viral trigger, or whether they are just presenting the same, but actually have completely different causes in the background. At the moment, we genuinely don't know what to expect. We've got a few target genes that we'd really like to look at, things about inflammation, genes about viral persistence, genes associated with viral clearance. One of the key hypotheses of long COVID is that for a certain group of the population, the virus just doesn't go away. It hides in the nervous tissue or it hides in the gut. And every so often it comes out and you know the common cold lowers your immune system, then the COVID that's been hiding there uses that as an opportunity to come out which is why people get exacerbations. It also could account for why a lot of people feel better after their vaccine. And actually, there's a, a really interesting demographic with a vaccine that you have your vaccine, you feel worse, much worse for two or three days because you've just had a big inflammatory response and your body is already lower, so the virus comes out. Actually, you then do much better from about a week to 10 days after that and that's because you've suddenly got a whole load of extra antibodies that are clearing and making sure that any virus that's hanging around has been boosted. Yeah. And so we are seeing a lot of people reporting that, that the vaccine makes them really unwell for two or three days, but then two weeks later, they start to feel a lot better. So it does potentially clear the viral load. Yeah. All of this is giving us guidance. And what we really hope to get out of these genetic studies, as with all of the other studies that identify it, is trying to figure out what causes which symptoms in who and then we know what the right treatments are and as soon as we know you know each gene is the gene for tnf alpha or interleukin 6 or some other fancy mediator as soon as we know which gene it is in which people then we can start with specific treatments so actually long covid may genuinely be the first population-wide genetic personalized medicine to that degree because we can do full body genetic testing for 20, 25 pounds. And if you've got long COVID, it turns out that some long COVID is caused by this gene and therefore we need that treatment. Others are caused by this gene and we need that treatment. What we might end up doing is turning up to clinic, having a quick gene test and say, right, this is a treatment that we've got an 80, 85% chance is going to fix you. As opposed to what we currently have is probably a good four or five different manifestations of the disease and within each different group there might be a different gene weakness different inflammatory mediator and therefore we're going to end up in a position that will either be taking a sledgehammer approach one thing that whacks everything out of kilter and actually that's really what the dexamethasone was in the acute dexamethasone is just a sledgehammer for the whole of the inflammatory system we can't be using that in the long term for patients yeah so it might save your life but it's completely decimating to everything else. So. Exactly. And, you know, for 10 days, that's fine. It saves your life. But you yeah. can't be doing that long term for long COVID. So if we think it might be to do with our genes, does that mean then that some people will always be protected from getting long COVID? Because one of the worries is, is that repeat infections, eventually people will develop long COVID. Everyone. Well, it does appear to be a group of the population that's actually been protected from catching COVID in the first place. I've got one or yeah. two of my colleagues who are working on COVID wards that despite working their minimum protection at the outset, now we've got these massively transmissible viruses. Um, they can sit in a staff room with people that are infected and don't catch it. Um, I've actually got so one colleague anything. who was yeah, he's laid next to his wife through her three infections and 
he hasn't caught COVID in the first place. And it's very likely that there'll be some people who are genetically protected who don't get COVID. And then similarly, if they do get COVID, they have got a much, much lower risk of long COVID. Whereas there'll be others that will get every single variant of COVID that comes along and every time they get it, the risk of catching long COVID will be just that little bit greater. And I think that's what we're looking at here, that there's a predisposition to catching it in the first instance. And if you do catch it, that also gives you a predisposition towards getting the long symptoms. And there's one more bit that I think I read you talking about, that there were also a lot of people who got COVID, had long COVID, and then it dissipated relatively quickly. So then is there potentially another genetic predisposition that means that long COVID is here to stay? I'm sure that there is. There will be some people who are not going to get better to long COVID till we figure out what caused it and fix them. I think it was like December 2020, you had said that time is the healer. Yeah. You don't necessarily believe that that's the case now in terms of we can't necessarily just get better. Not for everybody. Um, and I still think we're seeing a large proportion of people are getting better, and particularly now that we're, we're approaching subsequent infections with better immunity, with vaccination. Now with the bivalent vaccine that we're all hopeful is going to give you better protection, not just mm-hmm. against the acute, but also the long. But there are still a group of people who had COVID in that first wave and are symptomatic. And again, if we draw the analogies to myalgic encephalomyelitis, Lots of people get fatigue after glandular fever, Epstein-Barr virus. Epstein-Barr virus is the one virus that is most implicated in myalgic encephalomyelitis. And I'm saying that most. There are lots of others as HHV6, and there's some people who get immunoglobulin deficiencies, and there's some people with T-cell abnormalities. But Epstein-Barr virus is the most commonly implicated. After glandular fever, most of us feel lousy for a month. There's then another population that feel lousy for about three, maybe six months. But then there are some people that go on for 30 or 40 years that are still suffering those symptoms of ME down the line. And I think long COVID is going to be the same. And the, 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 the time game is really telling us what percentage of people are getting better in what sort of time frame. And of course, it's impossible to say beyond two years because we've only got two years worth of knowledge of this condition at the moment. But we saw 50% of people got better between week four and week 12. We saw about another 50% of the remaining got better between week 12 and 12 months. What's then going to be of real interest is of the 20 to 25% of remaining people at 12 months, how many of those are going to get better on their own? And how many do we need the definitive treatment for? And I think the research is going to be essential for both managing those patients and also hopefully effectively curing them. Is that with people who've not been infected again? Because a lot of people who've got long COVID have been infected multiple times. Yeah, I've just had my third infection two and a half years in. You've had two, haven't you, Noreen? I've had two. Two known infections and you're yeah. two years in. So people who have been catching the infections, the people who've got the long COVID, seem to be more likely to get recurrent infections as well. And again, yeah, this all fits we into a genetic predisposition. Now, again, it is too early to say based on the numbers because we've only really had four opportunities to catch COVID so far. The original wild type, you could then catch Delta if you'd had the wild type. You can then get the first of the Omicrons. And even if you've had the first Omicron BA1, we know that you can catch BA4, 5 and BA4.6, which is the one that's at the moment, and BF.7, which is the next one that's likely to be landing on our shores. 
And we know that even an original Omicron doesn't protect you against any of those three. Um, there's not enough power yet within the number of people with long COVID compared to those who haven't had COVID in order to figure out whether it is more likely. So there are those who are protected and they seem to have been protected against each iteration. What we are, are waiting to determine is as we come out of the current wave at the moment, we will then be in a position to start saying, actually, yes, long COVID is associated with recurrent infections. And therefore, long COVID itself is an indicator for being right at the front of the queue for the next vaccine. And that is something we've been talking about for a sort of while. Should people with long COVID, and for that matter, people with ME, be at the front of the queue for the, the next vaccine, given that they are proven to have um, a, a higher predisposition to it. We still don't have that proof that they're at a higher disposition, and that's why they're not at the front of the queue. But as it does come along, we will start looking at it. It's quite interesting because I've actually had two vaccines and then been recommended not to have a booster at the moment because of how badly I react to the vaccines. And it's not just been um, three days of being unwell. It's sort of seven days of being worse than when I have COVID and then having all my long COVID at its most extreme. So I will be really interested to see that data as it comes out, particularly with the new vaccine. You make a really good point there, because in the study we did looking at the vaccines, we had 67% of the population saw pretty dramatic improvements in the symptoms, you know, reduction mm. in the symptoms by up to 40%. But that, they are all averages. And there was a small group, 8% of the group that we studied, actually got worse after their vaccine. Now, I have to admit, a lot of us were predicting more people get worse because at the time we thought this was an autoimmune disease, that it was your own immune response that was making these symptoms and therefore bolstering the immune response would actually make long COVID worse. And that's the bit that we are looking at with interest in this 8% of people, people like yourself who get the vaccine and actually makes everything worse and they don't see any recovery. It feeds into the fact that long COVID is unlikely to be a single condition. It's more likely to be multiple different conditions all triggered by the same thing. So, Emily, you could have an autoimmune subset, I yeah. guess, of long COVID. So for me, I was fine with the first two jabs and then the booster really floored me for months. But my son had COVID recently and I slept with him and I didn't get it. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. <laughs> There's lots of things about this that still aren't making sense. I would suggest, actually, that the booster that floored you is actually probably the one that gave you the most benefit, then. It's just interesting. There are so many variables, aren't there, though? Because by the time you get this BF7, um, you might have had one Moderna vaccine, one of the new vaccines. You might have had the Wuhan strain. And, the, and so all of these things are going to play into whether you get long COVID or whether it exacerbates long COVID that you possibly had from that first infection that was kind of sitting there dormant. Absolutely. And then sitting on top of all of that is the data that's coming out so that saying these new variants are finding more ways to evade our immune system. Well, they are finding more ways to evade the immune system, but actually there, is, there are certain key elements that have to be present in order for them to still be a COVID, still be a coronavirus. And there's only so many mutations that they can make in order to evade the immune system that will make them more rather than less deadly. And what we are seeing is that the only remaining models, the remaining projections for how the virus can change, 
to evade our immune system will be making it less interacting with the spike protein. There'll be less risk of causing these things down the line. Now, again, uh, they're all computer, uh, computational models going on in the background, but there are only so many ways that it can evade the immune system and still make us sick. Uh, and I think that's the, the key bit about this bivalent vaccines that we're looking at at the moment. We've got a bivalent from Moderna, there's one from Pfizer on its way, and there will be others in the not too distant future. By having two different spike proteins, it makes our body focus on the similarities between them. So it's not just focusing on that and that. The body is inherently slightly lazy. And if it sees two different spike proteins, it will focus on the one thing of commonality between the two that will evade that. And if it starts focusing more and more on the commonalities, that then gives us protection, not just against what this spiking against, but those commonalities are the things that seem to be perpetuated. And therefore, hopefully, this will give us protection against future variants. And we're already seeing that to a degree. We're seeing that the spike proteins from the original wild type and BA1 are giving us 93% protection against the BA5-6 that's in circulation at the moment, even though BA5 and 6 didn't exist when BA1 and the wild type were created. And so that commonality theme, it goes through and hopefully that will protect us against future variants. And also, I mean, anecdotal, well, anecdotal, based on the small numbers that's been reported, it also seems to protect us against other coronaviruses. So if you have your bivalent vaccine, your risk of getting the common cold is lower, the risk of getting other viruses. Uh, the, now, I want to stress, you know, that's all very small numbers. That's not, not been published in a statistical manner, not been robustly evaluated. But the theory is there, and actually the test tube is there, so we're really looking forward to a cold-free season this winter. Just sort of final question, I wanted to talk to you about what you've described as an epidemiological aftershock. I know that you have seen, particularly in your patients, you've seen a big uptick in heart attacks as a result of COVID. I'd just like to find out your thoughts on not just heart attacks, we're talking, uh, you just look at what's happening. We're talking strokes, we're talking hepatitis, all of these things that have become more prevalent in the last two years. Why? Is it COVID? Is it long COVID? What is it? Absolutely. Heart attacks, strokes, dementia, diabetes, all of these things have definitely been increased by COVID. And actually, when we start looking at that, we need to go back to how COVID itself enters into our cells and how it interacts with our body. It uses a pathway that is specifically a natural protection pathway. Every bit in our body has got its own yin and yang. We spoke about um, sympathetic and parasympathetic, one speeding up and the other slowing down. Within the ACE pathways, the angiotensin converting enzymes, we've also got two pathways. We've got ACE1, Actually, we've known about that for years. It's associated with high blood pressure and we give ACE inhibitors to try and reduce the blood pressure. Uh, and we know that that has always been there as one of the harmful pathways that we need to inhibit to prevent blood pressure and protect blood vessels. Now, the ACE2 pathway was our own body's natural way of protecting against those things. So we had um, ACE1 that was designed to put the blood pressure up. 
ACE2 that was designed to lower your blood pressure, ACE1 triggers fibrosis and um, reactive oxygen species, things that are designed to actually kill individual cells, whereas ACE2 is antifibrotic and prevents reactive oxygen species. And, and just to put it into context, yes, our body does have pathways in that will kill individual cells. They are there to protect you against cancerous cells and to protect you against other things that shouldn't be there. But actually, as we get older, as we get more mature, they sort of get out of control. And that's why uh, they cause problems. Remember, from an evolutionary point of view, our body is designed to live about 50 years. And the doubling in life expectancy that we get is all driven by the modern medicines and the bits that keep us healthy. So we're in a position that we've got ACE1 pathways that are to raise your blood pressure and cause fibrosis and cause oxidative stress and all those other things. And then we've got ACE2 that's designed to protect our body against all of those. Yeah. COVID used that ACE2 pathway and blocked that ACE2 pathway. Yeah. Now for some people, it was temporary block. For other people, it has been quite a significant block. They're actually... ACE2 is something that most doctors would have maybe been aware of for a day or two in finals and then forgotten about immediately because we didn't have any treatments for it. We didn't routinely measure it. It wasn't something that was even part of our mindset. You know, that's part of your body's own protective mechanism. And if that isn't doing its job, we need to give it a hand. And that's where the ACE inhibitors came from. However, if that starts to fail, that's when things happen. So the natural balance between your yin and your yang is out of kilter and if you are prone towards a heart attack it will bring the time frame forward if you're prone towards diabetes it brings a time frame forward or a stroke or dementia and dementia is a, a really important one because that's brought the time frame forward by two or three years which actually for a certain demographic is a massive increase um, particularly if you're in your late 60s early 70s that you're looking forward to a good 10 years of healthy brain activity and all of a sudden you have 10 years of healthy brain activity is only two or three years worth of brain activity or even it teeters you over the edge that's where it becomes a massive problem now what we don't know yet is how much of that is permanent and how much of that is fixable if it comes to having a heart attack and a blood vessel blocking, then damage is done. Yeah. Similarly, if it comes to the stroke, damage is done. What we are hoping for is that if we're looking at something where it is more delicate balance, the function of the small vessels in the brain, for example, how is it going to be possible to tip that back towards the, the direction that we'd like it in? So the, the brain fog that younger people are experiencing or the dementia that some of our more mature populations are serving, um, is that going to be an irreparable damage or is that something that's going to be fixable when we can take away underlying stimuli? And again, these are potential groups that could benefit out of the long COVID treatment pathway because actually effectively it is the same underlying cause we think that's just manifesting itself COVID. differently in this one. Yeah, yeah. That was going to be my question. Is it the same as long COVID, just a more acute version of it because it then triggers something else palpable yeah having a heart attack is that, that acute thing that you can say yes your troponins have rise your ecg is abnormal you've got a blocked artery we need to go in there and we need to open it up whereas the the brain fog and the fatigue and the myalgia is a little bit more ethereal so it does lead to a distinction between the two outcomes but actually what we believe and i'm stressing believe i entirely possibly in 12 months time will be coming back and i'll be completely wrong i'll be happy to say it 
But what we believe at the moment is the spike protein, that bit of the COVID that causes the crown for the corona that interacts with our cells, that spike protein is interacting with the ACE2 enzyme. And when it interacts with it, it means that the ACE2 is not able to function. And in some people that happens and then it stops reacting. And in other people, the thought is that it remains somewhere in the system and keeps triggering it. Is that? Exactly. Yes. And and what we don't know is whether that means that some people have got the virus hiding within the body. Remember, you know, there's lots of precedent for that. Um, Shingles is just the old chicken pox that you had and childhood the virus hang around for 60 years and comes out we were just talking about that this morning a lot of people have got shingles exactly i mean um, and anything that dampens down your immune system will allow that shingles virus to come out okay it may well be that covid is just the the virus hides in the same bit of the brain or a different bit of the brain and it comes out so the the one of the places that people have hypothesized is actually in the olfactory center the bit that deals with sense of smell and we know that COVID got into there early on mm. because the first symptom we experienced was the loss. Yeah. Yeah. But other places it could be, it could be the gut. There's a lot of work that's come out that says the gut microbiome, the bacteria, the healthy things that, um, you know, Yakult and Actimel and all that lot tell us about on a regular basis. Those healthy bacteria are supposed to keep us protected. If the virus managed to evade them, it can hide in the gut quite happily and our own immune system can't get into the gut very well. We are dependent on the bacteria to do that. We know people with long COVID have a dysregulated gut microbiome, but of course we don't know whether that's cause or effect. You know, if you've suddenly fatigued all the time, it's probable, if not possible, that you'll reach for the high energy, high carbohydrate, high caffeine sort of diet, and that will change the bacteria that's living in your gut. So we don't know whether deranged gut microbiome is a cause of long COVID, allowing the virus to be in there, or whether it's just you've got long COVID and therefore everything about your diet changed and therefore your gut microbiome became dysregulated. Yeah. It's also possible that the virus could hide itself, it could hide its own RNA into some of those bacteria that we're dependent on. And if it's then hidden its RNA within the bacteria, then the virus itself doesn't need to be there. Just every so often, your bacteria will read a strand of it and they'll churn out some spike protein into your body afterward. All of these are theoretically possible and they would fit with what we've seen so far. We've got a long way yet to go to understand all of that. Yeah, I appreciate that. It just plays into so many conversations that we've had. So many people we have spoken to, is this a cause or is this an effect? How can you separate that out? And until we really, really have established exactly what's going on and the actual workflow of the virus or of the disease we're just not going to know chicken or egg and it comes back to which way we identify things and what we do about it so if we come back to the microclots the reason that people are so attracted by the microclots is that we've got existing treatments already that will treat blood clots and actually in Stimulate ICP, so I'm doing a clinical trial with the UCL team. Ami Banerjee is the CI of it uh, up in UCL. And one of the treatments that we're using there is the anticoagulant rivaroxaban because we know that it stops clots forming. And we don't know whether it's going to stop microclots forming. We don't know if everybody's got microclots. But one of the easy solutions there is we give the treatment and find out if people feel better. Now, that doesn't mean that We've actually stopped the underlying cause, 
And yeah. what we really want is a cure, not a sticking plaster. And rivaroxaban might be the sticking plaster that stops the, the clots forming, but it doesn't take away the underlying cause. Eventually, if we can figure out what that underlying cause is, we can stop it at root source. And I think the analogy for that is it's the difference between taking paracetamol to hide a fever or taking the antibiotics to fix the pneumonia. Yeah. And um, the rivaroxaban is likely to be the paracetamol to hide the symptoms, to hide the fever. Whereas the antibiotics is a thing that we really want in the background. And that's the that's where the real research and that's where all those research questions need to be coming from in the future. I thought that was quite a fascinating metric in terms of even if you look at the day that we did the interview, your heart rate variability did corroborate how you were feeling based on his explanation of it. And so I think that concept is interesting. If you can wake up and see that your system is all out of whack already, that idea that you can then change what you were planning to do to try and fit in with how your body is today. It would require me wearing a wearable, which you know I've been fighting. But very interesting. It was almost a re-education because the way I look at heart rate, I'm always looking at because it's going so high, oh, that's really bad. But actually for heart rate variability or HRV, the higher it is, the healthier you are. Yeah. And the lower it is, the less healthy things are working. Yeah, this idea that your system is not communicating with itself properly. Which, to be fair, is how I think my body has felt a lot of the past couple of years. Like, it just doesn't know what it's supposed to be doing. No, I totally agree. And so my my tolerance for any kind of activity at the moment is quite low. How's your heart rate variability today? Stand by. Let me check. She <laughs> says looking at her phone. Oh, it's a very low 28. Mm. So you need to just take it a bit easy. Yeah, and over the summer, it was in the 50s, so there's a definite drop. Mm. I really like the fact that he talked about human beings from an evolutionary point of view that really we're only meant to be around for 50 years. Yeah. So everything else is a bloody bonus. Yeah, so we're just prolonging our lives, basically, with all of this technology. Exactly. So this idea that you know we should be all alive until 80-plus, is a fallacy and we should definitely after 50 start to be getting ailments and what's happened is long COVID's come along and just made us sicker quicker yeah and we've got those ailments somewhat earlier than anticipated and I, and I actually quite like that because it's a completely different way of looking at this illness and also just humans life in general yeah yeah <laughs> well I'm serious it should have been a last week's show with about mindfulness we are evolutionally programmed to be around for 50 years. That's the general life expectancy. So, so just be grateful for every additional day. Exactly. <laughs> Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.